But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me pray as we start. Grace be with you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We pray, Lord, that as we look at it now and as we see it in this passage, um, it would motivate us, encourage us, help us to be devoted to good works. Amen. Well, for most of last year, the number one podcast in the UK was The Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett. It's a pretty interesting podcast, lots of great interviews, and it's not a surprise that so many people enjoy listening because one of Bartlett's main things is how to make a profit. So recent episodes have been titled like this, The Money Expert from Zero Dollars to Millions in Two Years, without any hard work, or the man that makes millionaires, how to turn $1,000 into $100 million. And with millions and millions of people listening to these podcasts every week across the world, it's pretty clear that we care about making a profit. And that's not hard for us to understand here in the city of London, is it? We're surrounded by companies, by buildings that are all about making a profit. Thousands of people will be moving to London over the next month or so to come and make a profit. Uh, That might be you here today. You've come to London and you're here to make a profit. And we're so glad you've joined us. We'd love you to make St. Helens your home um, over the next um, time in London. But in general, it's fair to say this city, it is all about making a profit. And in our passage today, you might have noticed that word profitable comes up. As we finish our series, we're going to think how as a church we can make a profit. So Tim began our series back in July with an imaginary email from Paul saying, God has told me how to fix the world. Well, this week, our email would be, God has told me how you can make a big profit. Paul has sent Titus into Crete to secure a profitable church. Now, I'm not talking about a church that makes a load of money, you'll be glad to know. This isn't going to be a talk on the three-step guide to turn your church into a global business. I'm talking about a church that lives for Jesus in every area of life. A church that demonstrates the gospel of grace in all that they do. A church that is a shining advert of the grace of God to a watching world. That's what a profitable church is. And we've seen over the past few months that Crete was definitely not an easy place to build a church. The people were ungodly. The churches were overrun by false teachers. Titus's task, it was a bit of a mission impossible. But the letter of Titus reminds us again and again that with the gospel of grace... Change can happen. A whole church can be transformed by grace. And that church can be a vehicle for change, even in a place like Crete, even in a place like London. And Paul closes the letter in our passage today by showing Titus how he can ensure that this church in Crete remains devoted to good works. Paul wants to see the church in Crete make a profit. And here's the blueprint for Titus. And as we've seen lots of times over the series, 
Uh, this, these instructions, they aren't just for Titus. They're just as much for us. Uh, look down with me at the end of verse 15. Paul says, grace be with you all. This letter is for all of the church. It's for the whole church in Crete. And so it's for us today. Here's a blueprint for us to know how to make a profit, how, what pitfalls to avoid, what goals to pursue. We're in the business of making a profit. And tonight is our roadmap for the months and the years ahead. But first, there's a big obstacle that we've got to look out for. And we're going to spend a good chunk of time here. Our first point, the obstacle, divisive false teachers. You can follow along on the handout, um, which you should have in the service sheet. The obstacle, divisive false teachers. Well, have a look down at verse 9 with me. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. If Titus is going to secure a profitable church, he needs to avoid divisive false teaching. He needs to avoid getting sucked into the needless debates. That stuff is not profitable. It doesn't make people godly. It doesn't help a church do good works. It isn't the true gospel. Now imagine with me, uh, you just started your own business. Um, You're a CEO of a startup somewhere, and you start to get yourself into loads of legal disputes. You start bickering with your colleagues. You're pernickety about every single detail, about every little thing. Well, you can be 100% sure that this business is not going to succeed. Your startup is going nowhere. Everyone knows that. And it's the same for Titus. But of course, for Titus, the stakes are much higher than your startup. These Cretan false teachers, they seem to have been obsessed with demonstrating their religious credentials. They wanted to prove they were the truly kosher people. Their family, family trees went straight back to the heroes of the Old Testament. They were related to Abraham. They wanted to claim that they knew how to be truly holy. They knew how to be, get close to God. They were the truly godly people. But all of this stuff in verse 9, these controversies, these genealogies, these dissensions, these quarrels about the law, this moralizing religion, as we've called it, it distracts people from the true gospel. It divides the church. And of course it does. If you start to make your Christian faith all about performance, all about religious rituals, all about family trees, well, then you're going to have hierarchies popping up everywhere. You're going to have a divided church. And so Titus needs to avoid it. And what's true for Titus is absolutely true for church leaders today. And we want to be clear, what does avoid mean? Well, Paul is not saying church leaders should just ignore false teaching. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, these people need to be rebuked. But he is saying church leaders need to keep a clear distance from this kind of false gospel. They need to avoid it. The whole church needs to avoid it. And I reckon in a church where lots of us aspire to some sort of leadership role in the church, whether that's now or in the future, that could be as a Bible study leader, could be in Sunday school, it could be as a church elder one day. We need to hear this, don't we? It isn't helpful to get into every argument there is. It is unprofitable and worthless. It doesn't show the kind of self-control that the gospel calls us to. And we know, don't we, this is often a big problem among young men. I know this myself. And it isn't helpful. The stakes are high. We've got the true gospel here, God's trustworthy revelation about Christ's gracious salvation. We've got the thing that actually transforms people that makes people say no to ungodliness and yes to self-control. And so we don't want to get in the way of it. Paul says, avoid divisive false teaching. Uh, Nick used an image a few weeks back um, that I found really helpful. False teaching, it's a bit like a Venus flytrap. It lures people in 
They don't realize how deadly it is. And then bang, they're trapped. And so that's why Paul is so insistent here. Church leaders, people like Titus, they need to be ready for this kind of stuff. Paul tells Titus not just to avoid these divisive false teachers. He also says there may be a time when discipline is necessary, or maybe better, to put distance between them and these false teachers. Distance. Let's look down at verse 10, verses 10 to 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. People don't really like the idea of church discipline or, or distance today. Uh, it's not popular in our society. People think it's harsh and cruel. But, but that's not what this is. Paul's aim here is the repentance and restoration of this divisive person. That's why there's this three-step process. This person who's twisting the truth, causing division, they need to be dealt with, but with genuine patience and a real desire to see them realize the error of their ways. So that's why Paul says, warn them once and then warn them again. And I don't think that's meant to be a quick process. It's only then that you would have nothing more to do with him. And each time, the aim is to see this person recognize that they've departed from the truth, that they need to come back. And if they do, they can be sure of complete restoration. That's exactly what God has done for us. That's what we heard last week. We've been saved despite our disobedience. We've been saved by the amazing grace of God. But it's because that gospel of grace matters so much Sometimes it's necessary to show clearly that this person, this divisive person, cannot be part of our church. And this stuff really matters. Remember chapter 1, verse 11, whole families are being led astray. And so the church needs to be protected. And Titus needs to act. And here is a person, Paul says in verse 11, they are warped and sinful, self-condemned. Here is a person who is persistently and unrepentantly teaching falsehood. False teaching that is dividing this church. It's very clear they haven't been transformed by the gospel. They're warped and sinful, self-condemned. They don't look any different from the Cretans around them. And unless this worldly false teaching is dealt with, the whole church will just end up looking like the world around them. It'll be unprofitable and worthless. And so whether this teaching is inside or outside the church, our church, it needs to be dealt with. And we've seen this over the last few years here at St. Helens as we've had to respond to the spread of false teaching in the Church of England. Lots of us will know that the Church of England have been running a process called the Living in Love and Faith that has involved lots of conversations about issues of sexuality. And I know there'll be lots of visitors here today, people just popping in. I just wanted to touch upon this briefly because it is where we really need to think about these kinds of issues today. God is clear in the Bible that he made sex for marriage between one man and one woman for life. That might be a deeply personal issue for us. And for all of us, we are sexual sinners, people who've not lived up to God's standards. And it is a wonderful truth, uh, the truth that we've been speaking to each other all evening, a truth right at the center of Titus, that we have a gracious savior. If we've trusted in Jesus, we know we've been forgiven, accepted by God. We have his spirit in us, enabling us to live for him. But it is right to respond to leaders in the church who teach against what God has revealed to us. And this stuff matters so much because it's about godliness. It's about truth. It's about God's power to train us to say no to worldly passions and yes to self-control. It's the message of Titus. 
And it's so discouraging, isn't it, to see church leaders who say, well, it's impossible to live up to God's standards today. You can't expect that of modern people. The church won't reach the young people if we teach what the Bible says. Well, I'm so thankful for church leaders, for for people like William and Tim and Luke, who are willing to listen to Titus, who care about our godliness, who want to encourage every single one of us to live for Jesus in every area of our lives. Remember what Nick said, godliness is dependent on our teachers, and they've been given the job to teach us in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And it's essential that they do that. We won't be a profitable church if they don't. So we need to be praying for the leaders of our church. Come along on Wednesday to see George commissioned for ministry here at St. Helens. If this church is going to continue to be profitable for many years to come, we need godly Bible teachers. Bible teachers who will stand for the truth. Bible teachers willing to distance themselves from those who do not promote godliness. Well, let's keep on moving through the passage. Our second point is that the goal is fruitful good works. Throughout Titus, we've seen that the aim is a church that is zealous for good works. Paul wants Titus to encourage godly living in every area of life. Paul wants to see the Cretan church living for God, honoring God, devoted to good works. And that priority comes up once again. Look at verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What does the fruitful Christian life look like? It looks like devotion to good works. What should Christians in Crete be known for? They should be known for their devotion to good works. What should we be known for as Christians here in London? Our devotion to good works. And we've seen that those good works, they're about godly living in every area of life. That was chapter two. Um, But I think Paul focuses in on a particular area here uh, that maybe we've not thought about that much in Titus, and that's zeal for mission. And Paul wants to see a church that is partnering with gospel workers from across the globe for the sake of the gospel. And Paul wants Titus to lead the way in that. Two ways he wants him to do this. He wants him to exemplify good works and he wants him to encourage good works. So first, exemplify. Chapter two, verse seven, um, earlier in the letter, Titus was told to be in all respects a model of good works. If the Cretans want to see what a godly person looks like, they're to look at Titus and see, yes, that is what it's like. So they're to copy Titus And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Verses 12 to 13. Let me read again. Chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Titus was part of this big group um, that Paul led of missionary workers. And Paul wants him to be looking out for this whole team of mission, mission guys. And it makes absolute sense for these guys Zenas and Apollos in verse 15 to stop off at Crete on their travels. Crete wasn't just a summer beach destination for the lads to get together. It was a gateway to Africa. And as Paul works to see the gospel go beyond Israel and into the rest of the world, he wants to send off missionaries everywhere. And Crete's the kind of seaside place. It's a trading center where you can do that from. And we don't know exactly where these guys went, but we know that they were gospel workers We know that they had gospel work to do. And maybe that was Africa. Maybe it was somewhere else. But Titus is to exemplify good works by giving these guys genuine practical help. He's to feed them. He's to clothe them. He's to send them on their way. He's to encourage them in their missionary work. And this was just one of the wonderful things about the early church. It was this beehive of missionary activity. People were traveling across the globe, 
trying to tell people the grace of God has appeared. Salvation is available. You can enjoy eternal life through Jesus. And everyone was working together for this. They cared for each other's needs. So Paul's given Titus this massive task on Crete. He wants to see churches established and strengthened on this pagan island. But also, verse 12, he says, come join me in Nicopolis. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. And I think this is interesting. Nicopolis is a bit like Crete. It's another beach destination. It's a trading center. And probably it was a staging post for the next bit of Paul's missionary work, right on the coast from Greece, just across from Italy. And it was the ideal place for Paul to spend his winter and then head off to spread the gospel further west. And he wants Titus to come with him. And so what Titus is going to do is he's going to demonstrate to the Cretan church gospel priorities. He's going to set off a fruitful work elsewhere when the time is right. He's not going to put his feet up on the sun lounger. He's a missionary right there with Paul. He's an example of good works. He's devoted to the advance of the gospel. But this kind of work, it isn't just for guys like Titus. It isn't just for Luke. It isn't just for William. It isn't just for people joining the associate scheme. This example is to filter out into the life of the whole church, a beehive of missionary activity. Titus is to encourage the whole church in similar gospel work. Verses 13 to 14 again, see that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we've seen in the letter that the good works are about godly living in every area of life, whether that's being a good father, a good mother, a good worker, a good citizen, courtesy to everyone. That's what chapter two was all about. But a specific element of that is that all of us are to work together in partnership, to get the gospel out. That's what Paul's getting at here. The church in Crete is to care for the needs of these guys, for Zenos and Apollos. They're going to be stopping through on their travels, going off to reach unreached places, so help them out. These are the urgent needs. Make sure they've got what they need. And this is what a fruitful church looks like. It's about each of us living for the gospel in our day-to-day lives. And it's about all of us sharing together in a vision to reach a world that needs the gospel. This is a profitable Christian life, a beehive of missionary activity. And it's a great reminder for us of the privilege to have mission partners that work throughout the world to reach people with the gospel. We've just got the updated mission prayer diaries. I don't know if you've ever seen these, but they have lists and prayer requests of all our different mission partners Why not take one uh, this evening and commit to pray for just one region of the globe over the next month? I was praying for Joel this month, who's exactly like Zenos and Apollos, stopping off here in London at the moment to be refreshed for more gospel work back in Cambodia. And we want to be a fruitful church here in London, but we also want to be a fruitful church that extends across the globe. And that means supporting, partnering, praying for gospel fruit throughout the world. That might mean going off ourselves one day. It might mean speaking the good news about Jesus in places far off from London. Or it might just mean small practical help. It might mean prayer for our mission partners here in London. And our vision is not just for London. Our vision is for the gospel having a global impact. And it's a wonderful privilege that even just in prayer, we can be involved in that. Well, a few years back, I was um, driving my car the day before an exam. Um, So I was pretty stressed, lots of revision to do. I'm sure the students will understand. And I um, drove into a petrol station. 
and I, I picked up the petrol filler, and my mind must have been a bit scrambled with the revision. And I remember thinking, man, this petrol filler is really hard to get this in. Uh, I just jammed it in anyway, and I filled the tank all the way up. And I started to drive. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Um, straight away, the car kind of chugs, chugs. It can't really move. And somehow, I realized that I put diesel into my petrol car. Uh, I then had to spend the next uh, three hours waiting for the AA guy. I think it's something like 400 pounds to get the tank cleared. Um, and unsurprisingly, diesel won't get a petrol car going. And that is exactly what it's like trying to be godly, trying to do good works without grace. And this is the central message of the book. And this is where we're going to close on our final point. The engine or the fuel is the gospel of grace. Without grace, the Christian life goes nowhere. Grace is the only way to see ungodly people changed into godly people. But Titus is kind of the number one good works letter in the New Testament. Good works come up again and again. And it might be tempting to start to think, well, isn't this all about human effort? Is this about doing my bit for God and then he'll be happy with me? If I do my bit for God, then I'll be saved. And so we need to hear clearly the reminder once again that the engine, the fuel of everything in the Christian life is the gospel of grace. You'll have noticed that in verse 15, he closes with the, with the words, grace be with you all. Great, great words to finish a letter. And I don't think it's just a kind of best regards Paul uh, kind of thing. Paul does end his letters with these kind of words. And that's no surprise because grace sums up his message. Grace sums up the Christian faith. Grace is what Paul never got over. Just have a look at chapter three, verses three to five again that we saw last week. Let me read chapter three, verse three to five. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul tells us that every single one of us, Paul right there with you and me, were God's enemies. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. And yet God saved us. He gave his only son. The Savior appeared and he died on that cross for you and for me. And that means we can be accepted by God. We can be heirs of eternal life. The goodness and kindness of, the God, of God in the gospel. It is a special, special thing. And it, it might be you're here today and you've never really got this grace thing. You've never really got why Christians talk about it. Can you see here how incredible it is? Can I encourage you to look back over those verses I just read? Because this is the unique thing about the Christian message. That you can be accepted by God. You can be saved. Uh, you can look forward to an eternity with your creator. Not because of anything you've done. But simply because of his great love for us. His grace. His mercy. And this is what the false teachers in Crete didn't get. They thought with a bit of religious ritual, a bit of moral effort, a bit of hard work, they could please God. They could finally be godly if they just tried a bit harder. God would like them if they just tried a bit harder. And this is what so many people, religious people think today. They think, if only I just worked a bit harder, then I'd make it. But it just misses the point. It's putting diesel into a petrol engine. 
Have a look back at chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to finish here. Probably the key verse in the letter. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul's just explained this amazing grace. And then he says, this is what you need to insist upon. The gospel of grace. That's what you need to insist upon. It is the gospel of grace that will build a church of men and women devoted to good works. It is the gospel of grace that produces people who are attractive to a watching world. Grace is, is magnetic. It pulls people in and it transforms them. And it transforms them to then go out into a place like Crete, to places like London, to speak of this amazing God. And it's as that grace, God's amazing, undeserved kindness to us, as it gets into our hearts and our minds, it's that which will change us. It's that which will make us godly, not perfect, but Christians devoted to good works in every area of life. The kind of people that stand out, the kind of people that people say, well, what is it that they've got? What is, where does that joy come from? Well, it's grace. We want to make a profit this year. We want to make a profit as a church this year. We want to see people changed by the gospel. And that begins by each one of us grasping this gospel of grace and living in the light of it. We're going to close there. Let me pray as we close. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Father, we praise you so much for your grace, for your kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how amazing this grace is, that you would fill us with joy and that it would lead each one of us to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Amen.